Welcome to the C12 Podcast. C12 is a college and young adult ministry where 20-somethings at 12 Stone Church gather on Thursday nights. We hope you are encouraged and guided by today's message. Right, what is up, C12? You guys doing good tonight? Man, it is good to, good to be here with you, uh, and uh, I'm really glad you chose to be with us tonight. If it is your first time, uh, we always say, welcome home, and so we are so glad that you're here. Uh, we, we throw something up on the screen every single week. It's just a, a QR code. If it is your first time, go ahead, pull out your phone. Uh, go ahead and scan that. We just love to follow up with you. We want to help you just get plugged into uh, maybe meeting other people, getting plugged with plugged in with our ministry family. Uh, so go ahead and scan that code. You're going to get followed up with a real person. Uh, I had someone uh, four years ago, um, they filled out their form uh, as Kobe Bryant. Uh, I know, rest in peace. Um, but they had, uh, they, they, I had, I had responded to them and, and they said, uh, they literally put STOP in all caps. Uh, and I was like, no, it's a real person. Uh, we, we, we can talk. It is me. Uh, everyone thinks that 715 Wisconsin number is a scam. It's not. Uh, so there is a real person following up because we do care about you, want to get to know you and your story uh, and get you plugged in. Uh, and the means of that is a way of getting plugged in that could look uh, something like jumping into a small group. How many guys are part of groups uh, here at C12? Uh, man, if you're not in a group, man, you are missing out of what it means to actually go deeper uh, in, in community uh, with those people that, uh, that are either in college or uh, that are known as a young professional. So we got a graphic up on the screen. Here's just a way that you can uh, go ahead and find a group. Uh, go ahead and text groups to 37748. Uh, you can click find a group, and inside that, you're going to uh, see just a means of, hey, look for our C12 logo, and you'll find a group, uh, different areas, different locations across uh, Gwinnett, Hall, Barrow County, uh, but go ahead and get plugged into one uh, if you aren't in one. Uh, but to kind of pivot gears uh, for tonight, uh, we are jumping uh, back into the series that we've been in uh, on the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and your favorite C12 resident, Justin Matthews, is going to be teaching tonight. Swan, you go ahead. Stand on up. Give Justin Matthews the best welcome ever. All right. All right. Hey, thank you guys. Man, what a what a what a welcome. I don't even I don't even want to do anything. Can I just walk away now? Um, hey, for those of you who are, are new here, my name is Justin. I'm a resident pastor here with our college young adult ministry. And man, I love you guys. Way, way before I, I worked with the ministry, I actually came here. Y'all were my family for, for years and years and years. And I'm so grateful that now I get to like continue part of that journey. So uh, man, I'm just grateful to share what God's been putting on my heart lately. Uh, so hey, uh, like Alex said, we're in the middle of our series about fruit of the Spirit. It's an all fall along kind of thing, and so if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you might have a little bit of an idea, uh, but we're talking about what are the fruit of the Spirit, and how do we cultivate them in our lives, and so I thought it'd be fun to shake it up a little bit. I have a, um, I'm uh, Mr. Moneybucks, I have a crisp fiver for the first person who, I know, thank you for the wow, uh, for the first person who can tell me the fruit of the Spirit. First person, all of them, out of, Johnny, I saw you, Go. You missed one. I saw your hand next. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. She found it. There's nine. There's nine. I got this for you. Here, Jill, toss that back. You can't keep it. Don't keep it. <laughs> well done. Well done. Hey, for those of you who missed it, it was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Give me that five bucks back. I just did it too. Um, <laughs> Hey, so those are the fruit of the Spirit, and now we're talking about, hey, how do, how do we cultivate them in our lives? How, how do we do that? And so Alex has done a phenomenal job kind of leaning us into that conversation, 
And I thought that a great introduction, if this is your first time joining us, if you're jumping in the middle, I thought that I would love to read John 15 with you because it kind of sums all of it up. It's very direct. So hey, we're going to toss it up. John 15, one through five. We got it right there. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. This is Jesus speaking. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Makes sense, right? That's pretty clear. He says it a lot of times in a different way so that we can grasp it really, really firmly. I like how Jesus does that. I don't get things the first time very often. But he says, abide in me and I in you and much fruit will come to you. Essentially, much fruit will come to him who abides in me. So fruit isn't something that we can conjure up. It's not something that we can create in our own lives. And I think a lot of times we miss that. We hear those good things like love, joy, peace, patience. We hear the, the not so fun things like self-control. Sneak peek, that's what we're talking about tonight. I'm sorry. I know it's everybody's favorite conversation, but we hear those things and man, we just want to do our best to form those things in us. And that's not how it works. So does that make sense? Clear as mud? Everybody good? I see a couple of nods. We're going to move on. Uh, <laughs> it took a second. It, it worked its way. It like snaked its way through the room. Uh, hey, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite fruit, self-control. Self-control is my favorite. I, I, I hope you hear my sarcasm. It's just dripping. Um, hey, I, I was looking up self-control. I was trying to figure out what, what is self-control? Because I say that and I guarantee you that there, there are probably 150 people in this room and every single person has a different perspective. So I thought it'd be fun. Why don't you guys just shout it out? No, no order, just random. What comes to mind? What's like a one-liner? Give me a one-line definition. What is self-control? Shout it out. Self-control. Self-control is self-control. Spot on. Self-control. What, what you got? Controlling yourself. We're doing real good. We're doing so good. Discipline. Impulse control. This is good. Great stuff. Give me, give me two more. Money. Self-control is money. Okay. Money in like the, the figurative sense. Like it's good stuff, Yeah. He smiled. That was a no. Give me one more. <laughs> um, think, think before you act. Discipline. Think before you act. Endurance. I like these. Patience. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. So we all have like different perspectives of what self-control is. So I want to make sure that all of us are on the same page before we can move forward. Fair? So here, here's some of the questions that I worked through as I was studying, as I was sitting in prayer. God, what, what is it? Can you give us a definition? These are some of the questions that I found myself asking. Is self-control a tool? Is it something that unlocks something later in life? Maybe. Maybe unlocks something later in relationships and friendships and, and character and jobs. Is self-control a pipe dream? Is it actually true? Can you actually have self-control? For a long time, I would have said no. Is self-control a point that we arrive at? Is it a means to an end or is it the end in and of itself? Like, can you go to bed one day and you're like 99% loaded and then when you wake up the next day, you make another good choice and you're fully there. Like, you have arrived at self-control. Is that possible? There was a group of philosoph uh, philosophers back a couple thousands of years ago. They, they were called uh, Stoics. And Stoicism was this, uh, this kind of strange belief, but it was close in a lot of ways to the truth, which is why it's pervaded so long. Have you guys ever seen like the Daily Stoic on Instagram? Have any of you guys ever come across that account? Okay, two in the back. I looked in the right direction. The ideas are still around because they're so convincingly almost correct, but they miss the entire heart of it. So Stoics, here's why I'm bringing them up is because they believed that self-control was a virtue. 
They believed that self-control was the virtue that unlocked your ability to overcome negative and unhealthy mentalities and emotions. They believed that that was the key. That was the thing that, hey, when you're born, you were born with a certain amount of it and you grow it throughout your lifetime and that one day you were able to overcome these things. It's like, um, does anybody go to the gym? Anybody like big gym people? Okay, okay, a lot of people, I'm seeing you. I, I saw some quiet hands, but they were lifted by very strong biceps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, hey, if you go to the gym, it's like that one guy. You walk in, and he's always there. Like, you go at different times of day, and he's still there. You know who I'm talking about. And you walk, and you're like, man, that dude's big. Like, is that genetics? Has he worked really hard? Is it a combination? Is it something extra? Like, I don't know. Hey, you can, you can all stop whispering, right? I, it's, it's all natural. I am all natural, okay? That's, that's the facts. But, hey, is that my wife? No, it was not. That makes me less, <laughs> less happy. We're going to move on much faster than I anticipated. But just like that, Stoics would believe that virtue, uh, that the virtue of self-control was something that you had a natural level of, and it was in your control. It was up to you to grow that self-control over your lifetime to reach your maximum uh, potential. Does that make sense? And it's convincing, like I said, because it's almost right, but it couldn't be further from the truth. So here's what uh, we're going to go with our definition of for self-control tonight. We're going to toss it up. Self-control is the supernatural strength to put God's will before your own. Self-control is the supernatural strength to put God's will before your own. And I worded it like that for a lot of reasons. I sat on it, I chewed on it, I spit out a couple different versions. This is the one that I felt peace about giving for two reasons. Supernatural strength. It's important. It's not regular strength. There's, there's danger in the conversation that you're going to hear this word of self-control and you're going to think, oh, man, the other eight fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, like, yeah, those make sense that God would give those to me, but self-control, is that's up to me. It's got the word self in it. That's a danger because it's a lie because it's almost right. It's just like the Stoics. But the fact is, is that fruit come from abiding in Jesus. And when Jesus abides in us, he produces the fruit of self-control. It is a supernatural strength outside of ourselves. And second part, to put God's will before my own. And you might hear that and be like, no, it's, it's the supernatural strength to do the right thing. It's a supernatural strength to say no when I need to say no, to say yes when I need to say Okay, okay, so let me put it this way. Here's why I said it like this is because some days it's real easy to do God's will. When you agree with God's will, man, that's the easiest thing in the world. When God tells me to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to me, which includes my job, I come into work and there are days where I get to meet with some incredible people. Some of you guys, I get to sit down and share stories. I get to get to encourage and be encouraged to share life with them. Those days are so easy. I'm rolling out of bed like before Christmas morning, like a kid. You don't have to tell me to get up out of bed. I'm beating my alarm. I love those days. I don't have to try to be a good steward. It comes naturally. What about the other days when there's things that I have to do that I don't enjoy so much? What about when my will and God's will don't line up? That's when I need that supernatural strength. It's not so easy, huh? Okay, I gotta sit down for this one. I, uh, <laughs> I couldn't share tonight. I couldn't speak tonight without sharing this story, and I tried. Uh, in all of the versions that I sat down and I, I kind of prayed through, uh, God just kept pulling this one back in. Uh, and so this is, this is story time. It's also group confession. I'm going to share a story with you. It's much more recent than I would have liked to have said, uh, but we're talking about self-control, and this is just the greatest example of my lack of self-control that I could possibly share. God and I are working through it, but I felt led to share it with you. So, story time. Bear with me. 
Were you guys here a couple of weeks back when we honored Emily? You guys remember sending her off and praying for her? Yeah, I see some heads. If you weren't, we had a resident uh, named Emily, and she was part of our ministry. She was a great leader. God did some wonderful things through her. And we got to honor her as she stepped into the next thing God was calling her to. We got to pray over her. We got to hear some of her story. And then we got to give her a gift. It was a small little gift. You might not even remember it. It was like a note, and it was a photo frame filled with a photo. Would you believe it? And part of that gift, uh, it was a photo of, of an event that we had over the summer and something beautiful that God had blessed and he had poured himself out into and we had prepared. And then it was just like our preparation meant nothing. God was going to do what he was going to do. It was beautiful. So we got to share that memory together. So we gave her a photo of that to kind of commemorate everything that God had did. Here's the story behind the photo of getting that frame physically in my hands. You guys don't know how good it felt to hand it away and be done with it. That day, <laughs> it was part of my tasks. You know that day where I said it's real easy to roll out of bed, and then this was a day where it wasn't? Okay, this was that day, uh, because part of my task was that I had to go and print out a photo, and I had to get a photo frame. And uh, I hate printing out photos, because who likes doing that as a process? And photo frame, I have, um, I have the opposite of a green thumb when it comes to decorating. Does that make sense? Like, I'm really, really bad. Now my wife is chiming in. I hear her now. Um, <laughs> I'm really, really bad at that. And so I was like, what's the place that's going to save me where even if I choose the worst thing, that it's still going to be good. So I went to the bougiest place I knew. I went to Target. And when I went to, when I showed up at Target, uh-oh, when I showed up at Target, I ended up going down the photo aisle. I was super overwhelmed. I was like, God, I, I don't know which one to choose. Which, I prayed about which, which frame to choose. I'm so, I'm so holy. Um, uh, I, I needed help. And so I prayed. I said, God, which, which frame? And, and I kind of saw a frame that it was clear. It was like glass. And then it had the little demo frame and it was black around the outside. I said, I can't mess that up. That goes with everything. So it was beautiful. So I chose that one. Check. Half of the task done. You would think that the story is going to end real soon, wouldn't you? Uh, here's the second part of the task that was less fun. I had to go get the photo. So that's at Target. Walgreens is right outside. And I end up driving over maybe two, three minutes. I go to Walgreens. I walk inside. I sit down at this behemoth of a machine. You know the one I'm talking about. I go to plug my phone in, and there's 8,000 Android chargers. There's not one iPhone. I get it. There's a whole bunch of them, so I finally, I find the right one. I'm having so much trouble on this screen finding the right size because I wanted one a little bit bigger than a normal photo. So I asked the lady behind the, behind the desk, I said, hey, would you come help me find a photo? Would you come help me find the right size at least? She was so sweet. She walked around. She walked through it with me. We sat there for five minutes, and finally we got the order placed. She said, your order has been placed and received. And so she's the one that would be printing it. She said, hey, give me about 45 minutes. These larger photos, they take a little while more. I said, perfect. I'm going to go get lunch. I'll go grab something, and then I'll come back. That's where I go to Chick-fil-A. I, I go to get some lunch because I love the Lord. I go to Chick-fil-A and I show up and I pull in and, and this is where things start to go awry for the day. This is where things start to get a little bit weird. Uh, I pull in and you know what to expect. I say Chick-fil-A and you imagine you're pulling in. There are 4,000 workers with the little vests on. None of them are clipped in the back, but they're all, they're all sitting there. <laughs> And you walk in, there's two lanes, and they're well-ordered, and you got people taking orders, and you, you merge, and then you get your food, and you're out in like three minutes. Praise Jesus. This was not that day. Today, I pull into Chick-fil-A, and as soon as I pull in, I see chaos. Like, no, 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 no. This, is, this should be a blessed process. I see chaos. There are cars, like, stacked on top of each other because there are so many cars in this dumb little parking lot. And so I pull in, and before I'm able to pull back out, I get wedged in by three more cars behind me. So I'm like, okay, I'm here for the long haul. And I start to look around. I'm like, what is going on? And you guys know, there's two lines. They merge, and you go around, and then the, the line, like, cuts in half so that people can get their food and go out. Right? You're with me? That part didn't happen. And so the two lines that merged, it was one line, and they went around, and everybody was frustrated with everybody else, and things were gridlocked to people trying to pull out of the parking lot and go away, and nobody could come in, and nobody could come out. And I was the last car that made it in. 
It was the worst. I was hungry. I had 45 minutes, so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick it out. 20 minutes passes. I promise you, not a word of this story is exaggerated. Bear with me. 20 minutes passes. I called Ashley like four times because I was so frustrated. 20 minutes passes. I've moved two car lengths forward, and I am no closer to getting, to getting my chicken because the same person that was stuck in the front of the line is still stuck in the front of the line. 20 minutes. I know they were having a worse day than me. 20 minutes passes, and all of a sudden, I'm at the point where the lines should go separate, and you see a lane and a lane, but instead, there are cones on one of the lanes today, so everybody's in one. It's important to note, because I get up, and I've waited my turn. I'm a rule follower, and the guy behind me, I, I see some movement out of my rear view. This guy's a real Einstein. I, uh, he has the big, big brain moment. He gets out of his car, and he moves the cones to the side, and then he drives past everybody. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even have this thought. It's so smart and so bad at the same time. And then the car behind him goes, and then like six more go. And now everybody that was behind me waiting in the road, they have now passed me and they have merged in front of everybody in front of me. So I have now gone from the middle of the line on this side of the restaurant. I am literally at the back. I now have the opportunity to back up and go out like I didn't before because everybody has passed me. I'm getting frustrated. 20, 25 minutes and now I'm in the back of the line again. So I'm like, I'm done. There's a Wendy's across the street. I'll settle for something greasy and good. And so I back up, I start moving out. And this one lady, she and I locked eyes so many times. She was so sweet. She was having the worst days. She was the same one that was stuck in front. She finally got her way through. And then the car backed up in front of her to try to get out, and they got stuck. So she got stuck again, and I came right up to her, and we locked eyes again. And it was like, is it your fault? Is it my fault? Is it your fault? Is it your fault? And it was one of those moments. So we were stuck again. Ten minutes passes. I have now waited a total of 30 minutes. I have not gotten my Lord chicken, my Lord's chicken, and I have not left this dang parking lot to go to Wendy's to wait longer. Oh, so I finally make it out. Praise Jesus. He sends out a whole bunch of the like fry cooks to help do traffic. I know they're not cooking because they're out there in the parking lot. I make it over to Wendy's and I wait another 10 minutes in line and I start to think, am I being punked? Is Alex, is he behind a camera somewhere? Is somebody filming me? He knows I'm speaking about self-control in a couple of weeks. He's just testing my patience. And so, uh, so I finally get, I, I leave Wendy's and I decide I have waited so long, I'm going to get my dang chicken. I go back in line and I wait another 20 minutes in, in Chick-fil-A. They have their stuff together now. I have wasted an hour and 15 minutes between two, I know it's sad, between two fast food restaurants and finally I get my food and I have the genius idea, hey, I'm going to reward myself. I'm not going to eat until after I get the photo. Until I get all my tasks done, I'm not going to eat until after I get the photo. I'm going to go back to Walgreens 10 minutes away. An hour and a half of time has elapsed. They told me 45 minutes and I have doubled that time. So surely I will walk in, grab my photo, pay, and be done. So my warm, steamy, beautiful smelling chicken is sitting in the passenger seat. And I walk inside to Walgreens when I get back. I find the same lady. So sweet, big smile on her face. I say, hey, I'm here for my photo. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be right back. She goes back into the back room. You still with me? She goes back into the back room. She comes back maybe four seconds later. It's so fast. She goes, hey, we don't, we don't print that size photo. <laughs> so, well, I, weren't you the one that helped me? You... You helped me pick this photo. You said we'd be ready. And put, so that's okay. Can I get the size down? I think it'll still fit in the frame. It's the glass one. You can go different sizes. And then she goes, actually, I, I don't know that we can. Let me go get my manager. She knows so much more about this than I do. I said, perfect. That's great. Maybe we can work something out. Her manager comes over, and you can tell she's having a bad day, too. Might have been the same lady from Chick-fil-A. She's having a bad day. <laughs> and finally, she... Uh, <laughs> She comes over, she hears, I'm like, hey, look, I've wasted so much time. I don't have time to go print another photo. It's for a gift tonight. It's for a really honored member of our team. I gotta have this. And she looks me dead in the eye and she goes, I don't see how that's my problem. <laughs> oh, you can, you can picture Walgreens, right? You know that this is a little area shoved in the back. And I turn around and like, I'm, I'm trying to like, 
oh, Jesus, how do I respond to this? Like, I need this, but man. And so I find myself, I'm looking at the chip aisle, and I'm going to shovel them on the ground. And he's like, now it's your problem. No, no, no. Uh, so I have this anger, this rage that is built up inside of me because of chicken and now because of a picture. And so I'm asking myself, I find myself like, how much can I bite into this woman before I get in trouble? Like, I'm about to be a pastor, I'm about to go to, to go to C12, I'm about to have this. How much can I like light her up for what she just said to me and still feel okay about going later? <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit was like, dude. And I, uh, I ended up going back to my car and thank goodness, I, I just didn't say anything. Like, I, I just, and I got back to my car and I, I angrily ate my chicken and I found myself super convicted for the question that I asked, which was like, how much can I get away with? And I started to think, I was like, we ask this question in faith all the time. These kinds of questions of like, hey, how much can I drink before it's too much? How far can I go with my girlfriend or my boyfriend before we've crossed the line? How much time should I spend with Jesus every day? Like, what's the right amount of time? That one's confusing. I'll clarify that a little bit later. We ask these questions all the time, but these questions, the questions that I asked myself that I hid away in my heart out of anger and frustration and a lack of self-control, these questions miss the heart of God. It's completely gone. Because the simple fact is, is that we need to reframe how we see self-control. So many of us, we think, oh, when I know my limit and I stay inside my limit, that's self-control. I was kind of curious if you guys would say limit when I asked earlier. If I know my limit, I can stay inside my limit, and I'm good to go. I'm that rule follower who's not moving the cones at Chick-fil-A. But I want to reframe it. Paul, in Romans 14, 23, he tells us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's blunt as albeit. Whatever does not proceed from, uh, from faith is sin. Which means that the question we should be asking is not how far can I go, how close to the edge can I get before I fall off the cliff. It's not how much can I get away with before I get in trouble or before other people think poorly of me or before God slaps me on the wrist. The real question is, does this bring glory to God? Does what I'm about to do bring glory to God? That's the base question for self-control. Because when you go back, look at the same questions. How much can I drink before it's too much? Does having another drink bring glory to God and what he's created? Or does it take what God has created as good and does it abuse it? Does it put it in a position in your life that it doesn't need to be in? Does it glorify God? How far should I go with my girlfriend? How far should I go with my boyfriend? I know God says not to do this before marriage, but I also know that they used to greet each other with a kiss on the cheek for, for like everybody in the Old Testament. So like there's definitely a somewhere over here and there's somewhere right here and I, I mean, can I live in the middle? Instead of asking that kind of question, the action that should go instead is, does this glorify God? Does what I'm about to do glorify God? It's convicting, but it's helpful. How much, spend should I time with, how much time should I spend with God every day? I think that question is really asking, what's the minimum amount of time that I can spend with God and still feel like I checked the box? Does it glorify God? Some mornings, five minutes on the car, in the car is the greatest quality time I've had with God all month. Some mornings, it feels like hours is not enough. What brings glory to God? If you feel convicted about it, if you feel guilty about the answer to that question, the answer is probably, this does not bring glory to God. So hey, that's the base question. I want to build off of that as we move forward, and I want to do that. I want to grow our perspective by jumping into uh, Nehemiah, the book in the Old Testament. We're going to go ahead and turn now, all of you guys. I promise, Brogan, I did it. Uh, it's Nehemiah. I'm sorry. Uh, Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, go ahead and flip there if you got your Bible. There's a Bible under the seat in front of you. We'll toss it on the screen if you don't want to look on your phone either. It took you guys a second. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. 
So hey, the book of Nehemiah, this is everything. I'm sorry, you guys are still giggling. Uh, this is everything you need to know to get into tonight's conversation. So we're gonna take a 10,000 foot kind of perspective. You guys can go and read through all the details that we're gonna talk about on your own a little bit later, but this will help us to see some of the larger themes. So leading up to the point that we're gonna jump in at the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, all you need to know is that King Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed Jerusalem's walls. He's laid waste to the walls. He has set fire to the gates. Everything is destroyed, and that's symbolic of the city's demise. When the gates are down, the whole city's down because anybody can come in and plunder and kill and do whatever they want. When the gates are not up for protection, everything has fallen. So that's what we're supposed to understand from this passage. It's in total ruin. And the book of Nehemiah begins with Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, begins with him and some men from Judah bringing this news to Nehemiah. We jump into chapter one, verse three. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. They've just delivered this news to Nehemiah, what I just shared with you. And he responds in verse four. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he goes into this prayer, whole section is Nehemiah's prayer. And he prays for himself. He prays for the people of Jerusalem. He prays for the larger city of Jerusalem, the physical brokenness. And he finishes up his prayer with verse 11. He says, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Pay attention to that. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah, he's heartbroken. He's just learned that his home has been destroyed and he's brought to shame by it. He's mourning and praying and fasting for days before the God of heaven. He takes the brokenness of the entire city of Jerusalem and he presents it to God. He brings it to God and he says, God, would you help me? Would you help me to rebuild this? Would you help me to rebuild this brokenness? That's exactly what God does. God strengthens Nehemiah in 80 different ways. Again, 10,000 foot perspective. He gives him favor with the king. That's the, end of his, that's the end of his prayer. Grant me him mercy in the sight of this man. Mercy in the sight of the king so that he'll help me. He'll give me favor to go and do the thing to rebuild Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, here's the, here's the speedy version, the cliff notes. Nehemiah goes to the king. He tells the king what's on his heart. And the king essentially asks two questions. How long do you need and what do you need? That's the kind of question you want to hear when you're asking for something. So the king gives him everything he needs. He gives him men. He gives him uh, favor. He gives him these written proclamations that he's got favor with every province he travels through to get to Jerusalem. Now the kings will leave him alone because he know that they know that he has King Artaxerxes' favor and protection. So they're not about that. They're going to leave him alone. And so as he finally gets to Jerusalem, he now has the strength to accomplish the task that God has set before him. And yeah, there's a lot of opposition. There's opposition outside. There's men with great armies that are threatening with violence and fear, trying to incite that in Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah responds the same way that he did when he heard about Jerusalem's demise. He takes his fear. He takes his temptation to stop working, to stop rebuilding, to stop presenting the brokenness before God and allowing him to fix it. He has that temptation. He takes it to God. God strengthens him. He gives him wisdom and they continue. There's opposition from inside the walls. There are city officials and nobles that are actually oppressing the people of Jerusalem. They're actually holding these mortgages and these loans over their head and they are holding their land and their possessions hostage. The people bring this to Nehemiah. He is frustrated. He is angered when he hears, when he hears these people's cry. And it says that he takes counsel with himself. He sits with God alone. 
and he receives wisdom. And he goes and he has the exact right words to go and convict these noblemen, to go and convict these officials, to give everything back. And that's exactly what they do. So every time Nehemiah comes across temptation to stop rebuilding, every time he comes across temptation to put it down and to let it continue in its brokenness, he goes to God. God strengthens him for the task at hand. That's the pattern. Brokenness, recognized, honestly, brought before God. God then strengthens you for the task at hand. So catch this. God can do more with your brokenness than you can do with all of your strength. He can do more with your brokenness than you can do with all of 10,000 people's strength. Isn't that kingdom math? Don't we see that, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness? It's kingdom math. It's a beautiful thing. I have another story to help illustrate this one. Uh, when I was younger, uh, when I got my first car, any, any car people? We got gym people, we got car people. Now there's high raise hands. There you go. Uh, I had my first car. It was a 2001 BMW 5 Series. It sounds real nice. It was an old boxy clunker, but I loved it. It was a beautiful car. I saved up for it. I paid for it. My parents helped me out a little bit. I drove that thing until it literally broke. And on that day, I smelled a smell. It was a very smelly smell, and I wasn't sure how to respond to it. So, uh-oh, if I just ignore this, maybe it was like a skunk or something. I knew it wasn't. So maybe, maybe this is a smell that'll go away. And it didn't. A couple minutes later, I heard a pop. I made a bop sound. It was more of a pop sound, though. Uh, and I heard a pop. And something in the engine had not done what it was supposed to do. And then my car immediately, you know the lever, that, uh, that thing that goes like this with the temperature? It went all the way up and a little bit past the hottest. So I was like, uh-oh. I pull over. There's a little bit of smoke coming out. And I've noticed that all of a sudden, I don't know anything about cars, so I find out later. It's not all of a sudden. Uh, that I have somehow broken my radiator tube. It's a tube that carries fluid that goes throughout the engine that cools it down. That's all you need to know. It cools the engine down. So all the fluid that was supposed to be inside the engine, it was on the engine, making that terrible smell, not cooling the engine down. So I took it to my dad, because I'm not going to a mechanic. I'm a broke college student. Uh, and I take it to my dad, and me, him, and my neighbor, we pull it into our garage, and we start working on that thing. We're so confident. It's just the tube. We can fix this. And in fact, in hindsight, I was thinking on this. We don't actually have the tube to replace it. We just opened the hood and started doing things. Uh, and so we have no clue what we're doing. And all we're trying to do is identify where it is and how we can fix it. And after three or four hours, not only have we not fixed the tube, we've also managed to crack the radiator itself, which is a much bigger problem. You can't just replace the tube. You got to, oh my gosh, I see some giggling over there. You've broken a radiator before. Uh, anyway, so we break the radiator. We've also managed, and again, I don't know anything about cars. We've also managed to find the one other piece of this engine that has to do with cooling that engine. We have broken every piece of this engine that needs to be cooled. So that way there is no coming back. This car was done for. I traded it in. I had to get a new car. I'm still driving that one to this day. That was the last day of this car that I had so lovingly named the Black Pearl. It was beautiful. I was the last day. And it was because my dad and my neighbor Edison and I, we all brought this car together. We tried to fix what was broken ourselves, even though we had no freaking clue what we were doing. We thought we could fix it, but we just broke it worse. We broke it more. And this is true all of the time in our lives. We feel like, hey, I don't have the equipment. I don't really have the knowledge necessary, but I can, I can muscle through it. I can find a YouTube video. You know, I can fix this thing in my life. I can go and find like a meditation thing. I can go and I can go put structures on my phone. I can delete some apps or get some apps to really help me develop new habits. Man, if I could just do something for 21 days, I'll be able to do it the rest of my life. You do things to try to fix habits. You do things to try to fix bad character. You do things yourself, but you got to remember self-control is the supernatural strength. 
It is the, I can't hit this home far enough. It is the supernatural strength to put God's will before your own. You can't do it on your own. We can't forge our own self-control. The Stoics were wrong. Take those thoughts out of your head. Who better to look at as a model for self-control than Jesus himself? He's the one that says he'll give it to us. He's the source of it. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was to be arrested, Jesus knew the weight of everything that was to come in the following days, everything that would ensue, all of the weight that he would carry, and he chose to spend some of his last hours of freedom in the world like this. We're gonna look at Mark 14. This is one of the gospel accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's up on the screen. Perfect, we'll toss it up. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little while farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke writes it this way. A little bit later, another, another gospel. And when he came to this place, he said to them, Jesus, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down onto the ground. Jesus' reliance on the Father needed to be so great in order to overcome the temptation to set aside God's will for him. You understand that Jesus was about to tear the veil. He was about to take on the weight of all of the sin of everybody who had come before and all of us who would come after. He was about to physically and spiritually and literally take on all of our sin, our shortcomings, as the perfect lamb, the sacrificial lamb. He was about to fulfill all of the law and all of scripture. It was a weighty, costly act, and he knew it was coming, and he cried out, Abba, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any way to not do this, Help me to do that. But God, if you're not going to change my circumstances, then strengthen me to get through them. Jesus didn't stand tall in the face of temptation. He humbled himself at the foot of the Father. I think this is where we go wrong every time. I think that this is where we go wrong as people every single time. We think, hey, look at me. Look at me, I've got self-control, whether I got it from God or whether I feel like I conjured it up myself. I got self-control. I can face this temptation in the face. Guys in the room, all right, you just gotta give me permission. I'm gonna be real direct the rest of this sermon. Guys in the room, you're looking at your phone, you're on Instagram, you're on the things that will lead you into the mentality of maybe looking at porn a little bit later. You say, no, I can sit with temptation. I'm strong enough. I can look this thing in the face and overcome it. Are you kidding me? And then where are you at later? We try to stand tall in the face of temptation, but you are not taller than your temptation. You are not stronger than your temptation. I'm sorry if this is bad news for you. I don't want to offend you, but you are not stronger than the sin in your life. You cannot overcome it out of your own strength. You cannot overcome it out of your own power. It doesn't matter how many rules and structures and accountability you set in place. You are not strong enough to overcome temptation and anxiety and addiction on your own. 
You need supernatural strength. You'll fail every time if you don't. Jesus knew this. Look at what he did. He brought his brokenness. He brought his humanity. He brought his weakness. He brought his temptation to the Father. God strengthened him in prayer. Look at this. God sent an angel to demonstrate this for us. That Jesus, when he brought his brokenness in prayer to God, God strengthened him for the task at hand. Jesus' self-control wasn't loud or outward or public or full of pride, saying, look at me, I got this. I don't need to set this aside. I'm stronger than my temptation. It was quiet. It was humbled. It was inward. And it was private. Look back at that one scripture. It's, uh, it's the Luke passage. It says, and he withdrew from them, the disciples, about a stone's throw away. Later in this passage, if you're familiar with this story, then you know that three times Jesus goes and he prays this prayer. Three times he sees the disciples and he says, keep watch, keep praying so that you won't fall into temptation. And every time he comes back, they've fallen asleep. Jesus is a stone's throw away. I can chuck a stone pretty far, but I can still see where it lands. He's a stone's throw away. The disciples don't see the hidden battle that Jesus is walking through. For Jesus, it wasn't even hidden. There was blood coming out of him as if it were sweat. I say this to drive this point home. So many times, self-control's biggest battlefield is the place where no one else can see the fight. You're not watching porn at the food court, at the mall. It's silly, but I'm serious. You're not. Only you know if when you go to work, if when you go to class, you're giving 60% effort because what's good enough for you might be great for someone else and you look like you're doing real good, but you know, God knows, that you are not being a good steward of what he's entrusted to you. You're not doing as well as you could. You're not bringing as much glory to him as you could. You know. No one else knows. When you choose to overindulge in entertainment or food or at the gym, these are good things. But when you abuse a good thing to escape something deeper, there's a good chance people won't notice. They might not. When you hide away from pride or selfish ambition, when you hide those things away in your heart and you begin to let bitterness grow its roots into you, you begin to be resentful of the people around you, but you still put on a smile, you still say nice things to them. No one sees those things corroding your character or your heart. No one sees when you choose to sleep through your quiet time in the morning. No one sees when you choose to sit on your phone instead of spending time with God. No one sees those things. Ben, you can come back up. I want to tell you guys a story about my freshman year of college. It's about this hidden battle. Now, I got my call to be a pastor when I was a junior in high school, a couple years before, and I felt like it was clear as could be. I felt like it was this beautiful moment in prayer that God was like, you're going to be a pastor. I choose you. It was awesome. And I did the first thing. I went and I shared it with all my friends and my family and my pastor, and I told everybody, and every single one of them came back to me and said, Justin, I'm not sure you heard God right. I'm not sure God's right about that one. I was broken. I was, I was so I was surprised. It's like, well, surely I'd be the best of all pastors. Already, it shows you something's off. And I said, you know what, God, if you're not, if you're not going to change my calling to fit me, then I'll do it myself. If, if I'm not right for my calling, then I'm going to change my calling to be right for me. And so I went about the next three years doing everything I knew how to run away. I changed my major a billion times just to try to find something that satisfied. I turned to everything that my flesh desired. I gave into absolutely everything. I made decisions that hurt my girlfriend at the time, my now wife. I made decisions that I, I, they were selfish decisions to make me feel like I was in control with my family, with my mom and my dad. I said things that I still regret to this day because I wanted to be in control. 
And then you fast forward to my freshman year of college. I'm out of the house. I got freedom to do anything I want. And I do it all. Later that year, it was April 10th, 2018 of my freshman year. It was towards the end of the spring semester. I lived my whole freshman year like that. What I was hiding the whole time of doing these things that seemed great, all the partying and everything and being a poor student and being a bad son and all of these things, it all began to catch up with me and I couldn't hide the battle of what I was struggling with anymore and so I came to the outside and I just collapsed. I was in my room one day and I just said, God, I can't do it anymore. I have no strength to go on on my own. I can't overcome all the sin in my life. I can't overcome the shame about running from you. I can't run far enough from you, but I can't feel like I can run to you because I've done all these things. I'm stuck in the middle. I don't know what to do. I was filled with anxiety and depression and fear. Thoughts of self-harm had come back from when I was earlier in high school. So I just brought my brokenness to God. I didn't have words for it. I just cried. I called Ashley. She went to a different school, so she wasn't able to be there. But I called her. We FaceTimed. I, I, I shared all of this with her. And I thought I had been doing a pretty good job of hiding what was internal. But she knew. She said, maybe, maybe you're experiencing these things because you're running from God. You're running from what he's asked of you. You're giving in the, you're giving into the temptation to say no to the good things that God has asked you to say yes to. And I was like, so I hung up with her. And man, I fell face down on my bed and I cried for hours. I missed every class. I missed all of my things that I had later that day. And I cried out to God. I said, God, I need your help. If this is it, then I say yes. If you're not gonna change my, if you're not gonna change my circumstances to fit what I want, then God, change me to fit my calling. Change me within my circumstances. Give me strength. How was the day where everything began to change within me? It's not been a straight path ever since, you know. I'm human. That was the day that everything began to shift. It's one of the dates, the three dates, when I got saved, when I got baptized, on April 10th, 2018, when I surrendered to God. It's written on the front of my Bible. Don't you want freedom from the things that are eating you in private? Don't you want freedom from the things that are bringing you shame? Freedom from the things that you can't feel like, that you feel like you can't escape, that no matter what you try to do, no matter what group you join, no matter what person you talk to, you just can't seem to flee it? I'm looking at each of you guys in the eye because I know you know what I'm talking about. I'm not alone up here. But it's easy to hear this message and to again say, no, I'll let God grow it in me, but I'm gonna go home and create a plan. I'm gonna leave tonight with a plan to do more. I don't want you to leave tonight with a plan to do more. I want you to leave tonight having drawn nearer to the living God. That's what I want you to have experienced when you leave tonight. I don't want you to walk out with like a good message, like, hey, good, I hope it's good. I don't want you to leave tonight with that. I want you to leave tonight having drawn nearer to the living God, been encouraged and given hope because here's what I know to be true is the place where you lack the most self-control is your area of greatest brokenness. It's the area where you are in the greatest need. Maybe you turn to sex because that's what your flesh turns to, but really you desire intimacy. You desire to be known by someone and to know someone on the deepest level. Maybe you overspend or you overwork because you feel the pressure to provide for yourself, to control tomorrow, but your greater desire is just to have peace today knowing that tomorrow is provided for try to control how it's done, but in reality is if you abide in Jesus, that tomorrow is taken care of. 
Whether you breathe another breath tomorrow morning, the day is God's. His mercies are fresh. Whether you go home to the Father tomorrow morning, He has tomorrow. Maybe you say everything that comes to mind. You let gossip fly free. You say all the mean things that are hiding away in your heart. You put others down because lowering their sense of value and your perspective makes you feel just a little bit better about your value. When at your core, you just crave to know that you have worth. You have value. You have meaning. You haven't yet decided and worked through the fact. You haven't reconciled that your worth isn't in who you are. It's in whose you are. You drink or you smoke or you eat or you do a number of other things to try to escape the pain of the moment. But in reality, you crave healing. You crave a fullness that can only come from God that you're not even sure if it's possible anymore because you've spent so long in this brokenness. Jesus' response to brokenness, Jesus' response to his temptation was to fall on his face and surrender to God and to pour his brokenness out. God's response was to strengthen him for the task at hand. Nehemiah sees brokenness. He's honest about it. He brings it to God and God strengthens him. Jesus is honest about his temptation. He doesn't stand tall. Look at these scriptures. They say that he knelt down and prayed, that he fell to the ground and prayed. What if self-control didn't look like a room full of people who had it all together? What if self-control looked a little bit more like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What if self-control found in abiding Jesus in abiding in him and with him in the quiet place when was the last time you were broken before God when was the last time you recognized your own need for God's strength and provision in your life I was praying on how to finish out tonight and I felt a very clear pull that God made it clear in his scriptures the ones we've been sitting in Jesus knelt down. He lowered himself. And so this is the invitation. It's not just an invitation for your heart's posture. It's not an invitation to stand up and do something corporately. This is an invitation to ignore the people to the left of you and to ignore the person to the right of you, to pay attention to the person in your chair. God is clear about what he'll do when we bring our brokenness to him. That part of the story is already written. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Here's the invitation. The band is going to start playing in a second. They're going to give us some space beforehand so that God has time to work in our hearts. Maybe you know exactly what I've been talking about tonight. Maybe tonight was for you. The invitation is to make this room your garden of Gethsemane. To make the very chair that you're sitting in your garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you need to do the awkward little dance of sitting down in front of your chair, of kneeling down in front of it, turning around and making that chair your altar before God saying, God, I'm broken. Oh God, I can't overcome this temptation. Oh God, I can't overcome this brokenness in my life. I need your strength. God can do so much more with your brokenness than you can. So I'm gonna pray for us. And as I'm praying, I want you to spread out if you need, use the back of the room, make the front of the room your altar. Make, the, make your seat your altar, I don't care. Make this moment between you and God. Respond to his prompt to you. So Jesus, we thank you for how you've demonstrated humanity to us. We thank you that you've showed us that you who, were, you who were without sin brought your temptation before God. You brought your brokenness before God and he strengthened you. 
us in this moment, that each of us have something, each of us have something that we would love to be free from. Holy Spirit, would you bring it to mind? And would you convict us to the point of responding, not just emotionally, but God, would we physically respond would we fall on our knees before you in humble surrender, knowing that you are the only one who can lift up? God, would you come and work in our hearts? Would you come and shine your face on us today? Would you come and give us your strength, your supernatural strength, God? Not to necessarily change our circumstances, but to give us the strength to be faithful through them. Come and work in us, Jesus. In your name. Thank you for listening to the C12 podcast today. To stay connected with C12, make sure to follow us on Instagram at C12Stuff. One of the best ways to get connected with others and grow in your relationship with God is jumping into a small group. To sign up for small groups, go to 12stone.com slash small groups and search college. We hope to see you next week.